Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Exodus 12, 1 through 28. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roast it on the fire, With unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the Egyptian, all, all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. You shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin. And touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this rite as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, You shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover 
for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. There are many, many false gods in the world, but there's only one true Lord. Many false gods. The Egyptians worshipped over 450 deities. Pharaoh was worshipped as a god. The Nile was worshipped as a god, the Nile River. There's lots of uh, nature gods, gods that look like frogs, gods, the sun god, were all worshipped in Egypt. And as God is showing the Egyptians that he is Lord over all, he has been systematically dethroning the false gods of Egypt. There was a sun god, but the Lord God of all the earth made it dark all night and all day. There was a God that looked like frogs, but God made the Lord God, the true God, made frogs come on the people of Egypt. The Nile was worshipped as a God by the Israelites, and God turned the Nile, the Lord God, the true God, turned the Nile into blood. You see what's happening here. The Lord God has been dethroning the gods of Egypt. Now, this is important for us to think about because when we talk about the fact that there are many false gods in the world, we're not just talking about Egyptians or those that we might think of as polytheists. We're talking about ourselves. We're talking about America. We're talking about where we live. We're talking perhaps about our own hearts. St. Augustine said that the heart is capable of manufacturing all sorts of false gods to worship. And if you want to think about this, here's a, here's a way to help you think about Where the temptation might lie in your own life. Just ask yourself the question, what are you living for? What are you living for? Whatever it is that you're living for is your functional God. Now, we all just sung praises to Jesus Christ a moment ago. We sung praises to the true God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit But I'm afraid that many of us Christians in our journey of faith, though we worship the true God, have a tendency to live as part-time polytheists. Meaning, we worship God and live for God as the ultimate authority and the ultimate value in our lives. The one whom we love above all else, some of the time. And then we live for some other stuff. What are you living for? There's many false gods in the world, but there's only one true Lord. So today we're talking about the Lord and the gods. The Lord has declared war on the gods. Everybody say the Lord. Lord. Everybody say the the gods. There's one true Lord. There's many false gods. I got bad news and good news. The bad news is whatever it is that you live for, if it's not God, If it's not the Lord, the one true creator of heaven and earth, it will actually devour you. We've all tested this by experience, right? If you live for money, it'll devour you. 
if you live for the praise of people, you want people to be impressed with you and think you're very successful, then you'll always be insecure and think you're not successful enough. Every God other than the true God will devour you. These false gods will make you a slave even while you're worshiping them. Only the true God can make you free. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. In the book of Exodus, we are learning that the Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the Lord, the great I am, God, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit is the great and victorious warrior king. He will defeat the false gods and set his people free. That's what the text is about. Look with me for a moment on verse 12. Here's the heart, I think, of this text. The second half of the verse, this is God talking, the Lord, the true God. And he says, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am the great I am. I am the creator and the redeemer. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Bow your heads with me. Let's pray before we continue into this text. Lord, at this morning, we are people who need to be set free from anything in our lives that we would put in your place. So in in the few moments ahead of us in which we're meditating on the scriptures, I ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. Would you give us discernment? To see where we have taken your good gifts and perverted them and twisted them to put them in the place that only you should occupy in our lives. Would you give us grace to repent? Would you give us grace to trust in Jesus Christ? Lord, would you do what you do as the liberating warrior king to set people free right now? I pray for those that don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ that today would be the day that you draw them to Jesus by the power of your spirit. And I pray for every Christian in this place that there would be a trans, a continued process of transformation by the renewal of our minds, that we would learn to love you and you alone and you above all else as the center of our lives. And where we are afraid because of evil powers in the world, we would just come to be confident that you are victorious. We pray these things in Jesus name. Amen. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. What does God mean? What is he saying right now? Well, let's put this verse in its context. We're reading a story in which God is on the move to keep his covenant promises to his people, Israel. God promised to be their God, to bless them and to use them to bless all nations. They were enslaved. They were oppressed by the Egyptians. They groaned in their slavery and God heard their groaning with compassion. He sent his servant Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh has a hard heart. The Egyptians have a hard heart. So when they won't listen, God's been giving them plagues. Nine plagues now have come. And now things are escalating once again to the 10th plague, the most dramatic of all. God is going to kill the firstborn sons of Egypt. It's a horrible judgment. God has already given the people many, many, many chances to repent. But because they have persisted, in rebellion against the word of the Lord and in their intent to oppress God's people. Now, this horrible judgment is coming because the justice of God is inexorable. You can't run from it. You can't hide from it. All you can do is run to God and cry out for his mercy. So in this context, God is saying, I am going to before Pharaoh and before all the Egyptians show everybody if you want to 
dishonor me and oppressed people and I confront you and you resist and try to fight me, you're not going to win the fight. He's going to show them that he is the most powerful. Now, this verse, verse 12 in our text today, Exodus 12, 12, is the first of 17 times in which the book of Exodus talks about the gods, little g with an S at the end, false gods. And one of the main themes throughout the rest of the book is going to be God exalting himself above all the false gods. Let me just read you a few of these. I'm not going to read you all 17. How about three of them, though? In chapter 15, verse 11, spoiler alert, this is right after God has set the people free. He has saved them from Pharaoh. He's brought them out of their their slavery. He's sent down the Red Sea, crashing on the powers of Egypt. And then the people of God are starting to sing songs of salvation. And listen to this word from the song of Moses. Chapter 15, verse 11. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? There's many gods, but none of them is like the Lord. There's only one holy Savior and Redeemer. That's the song of salvation. Then we keep reading. In chapter 18, Jethro shows up. You remember Jethro? Father-in-law of Moses, priest of Midian. He shows up many times, as a, or a few times, as a wise mentor to Moses. And now, after the people have been set free, Jethro shows up again. And when Jethro shows up now... He hears the story about what happened, and he's like, whoa, Moses, I supported you when you went, but I didn't think it was all going to go down like this. And listen to, this is my paraphrase, if you want to know what he actually said, here it is, chapter 18, verse 11. Now I know that the Lord, Yahweh, is greater than all gods, because in this fair they dealt arrogantly with the people. The Egyptians were arrogant. They resisted the word of the Lord. They kept oppressing the people. And now God has been victorious. And Jethro says, now I know Yahweh is God over all gods. When we get to the Ten Commandments, the very first commandment, chapter 20, verse 3, is going to be this. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, that's an important phrase. Everybody's saying no other gods. One of the big things that we can take as Christian disciples of Jesus from the book of Exodus is this word. Listen, the Lord God is awesome. He's holy. He's everything that we need. He's a savior. There's none like him. Don't live for any other gods. Don't put anything else in the place of God in your lives. So this leads us then to the question. What are the false gods in our culture? That need to be dethroned dethroned, knocked off their pedestal, if we are going to be truly free. Or we could just make it really personal, like, what are the false gods in your life? I don't know what it is for you, but as I look around in America, I think there's a few that we can name in our culture. I think we love to worship the God of money in our culture. I think we love to make sex ultimate in our culture. I think we love to bow before the altar of power in our culture. I think probably our favorite God is just the God of self. And maybe related to that, personal freedom, individual autonomy. I get to do what I want to do whenever I want to do it. It's the sin of Adam and Eve. It's the root of our folly. 
The thing about all these is that actually all these things are gifts from God. We've talked about in the book of Exodus that evil is not creative. Evil is not some like dualistic force in the world, equal and opposite to God. Everything is created by God and everything created by God is good. Amen. The problem is that we take God's good gifts and exalt the creature over the creator, as Romans one puts it. We take God's gift and exalt the creature over the creator. So ain't nothing wrong with money. You needed to buy stuff, right? Jesus in Matthew chapter six says your father knows that you need food and shelter, the stuff that that money can buy. And he's going to take care of you. You don't have to stress about that. Money can be a powerful servant that we use to honor God and to bless people. But money is a horrible master. Jesus said, you can't serve God and money. You're either going to love one and hate the other. You're going to despise one and love the other. You got to pick. Money is a horrible master. If you're living to get rich, if you're living for money, if you're holding on to your money instead of using it to honor God and bless people, that God needs to be dethroned. Sex is created by God. It's a gift from God to be enjoyed within the context of a marriage between a husband and a wife, covenantal love. But our culture has taken Sex out of the context God created it for. It's glue within a covenantal bond between two people that brings forth the gift of children and life. It said, no, no, sex is all about self-expression and self-gratification. Let me ask you, is that bearing good fruit in our culture? There is just remarkable, unprecedented suffering in our culture. Due to a culture of self-gratification... In which the other person becomes an object to exploit for my sexual pleasure. And it's just destroying us and it's ripping us apart. Our culture thinks of it as freedom and it's bondage. If you worship that God, it will devour you. Power. I don't even really need to say anything about this. What, what could be more obvious than that we're a culture that bows before power. That celebrates and honors powerful people, even if they also happen to be unjust, immoral, narcissistic, and so forth. We're a culture that builds little altars to self online, in which we have highly curated little icons where others can join in the worship of ourselves. Although, since we're not worshiping anybody else's self, I might just say to you, they probably aren't worshiping you on Facebook either, right? <laughs> Each of us is building our own altar we just love self and we think a freedom, our, our culture tends to think freedom means nothing can hinder my ability to do whatever I want. Individual choice is king. And if you hinder my choices, then you're hindering my freedom. This is a very effective lie of Satan because the, the reality of sin is this, that if I keep doing whatever I feel like I'm doing or whatever I feel like I want to do, I'm going to be a slave. What I need to do is be set free from the passions of the flesh. Go check Ephesians 2, friends. When you live for your own passions, does it make you feel free? Maybe for a little while. And then it makes us slaves. Jesus is freeing us, according to 2 Corinthians 5, not to live for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again. That's freedom. There's lots of false gods in our culture, but here's what God said to the Egyptians, on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And he says that, I think, to us today as well. And what I want you to hear is this may be coming to you as a call to repentance. But this is really an offer of freedom. 
This is an offer of freedom. The warrior king does not want to leave people enslaved by false gods. He wants to make you free. And actually, the book of Exodus is a very powerful antidote to a false concept of freedom in our culture. So everybody say freedom. If, if Jesus sets you free, you are free indeed. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That's what the gospel says. But how did he set us free? Not by saying, just do whatever you want to. We were already doing whatever we wanted to. That was the problem. That's what separated us from God and brought brokenness into our lives, our families, and our neighborhoods. Jesus came to set us free by dying on the cross for our sins, taking the consequences of our rebellion, then rising again victorious so we could have freedom and reconciliation with God and learn to live for something other than ourselves. That's freedom. Now, we got to ask about our text today in Exodus chapter 12. Okay, God says he's about to execute judgment on the gods. How is he going to do that? What's God up to here? And here's the answer. The Lord is pouring out judgment on the evil acts of Egypt. And at the same time, delivering his people from death by the sign of blood. So this is about judgment and grace. The two go together. Everybody say judgment. Judgment. Everybody say grace. Throughout scripture, we find the two go together. God makes no peace with evil. God pronounces his judgment on evil. But God is a God of grace who offers forgiveness and reconciliation to anybody who repents. Judgment and grace. God is judging the evil deeds of Egypt. And by grace, he's offering deliverance to his people through the sign of blood. The judgment is a horrible judgment. It's a fitting judgment. As we talked about. A couple weeks ago, not only did the Egyptians oppress the Israelites by making them slaves for generations, but the Egyptians committed widespread infanticide. They murdered who knows how many hundreds or thousands of little baby boys. They murdered them. And now, as God is calling them to repent, the first plague was to turn... The Nile River into blood. The Nile River into which the Egyptians threw the baby boys of Israel. They may have forgotten about it, but God did not forget. And the blood of the innocent is crying out against the Egyptians. And now he's calling for the life of their firstborn sons as they murdered the sons of Israel. He's been merciful. He's given them an opportunity to repent, but they refuse. It's a horrible judgment. But when the destroyer comes, that's the language of our text. When the destroyer comes to bring judgment on the land, God's people can be kept safe by faith in his word. And the sign of faith is the blood of the lamb. Now, I want you to hear some key words here that show up a lot in the New Testament. These are gospel words. So we already said judgment and grace. Now I want you to say this. Say faith. Faith. The people are saved. They're delivered by faith in the word of God. And then there's a sign of that faith. So everybody say sign. And what's the sign? sign, God's the one who's going to save them. The sign is everybody say the blood of the lamb. All right. Let me show you two verses here. Two verses. Help us understand this. First, look with me at verse seven. Actually, three verses. I'm going to show you three verses. That's all right. Verse seven. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses 
in which they eat it. So God told the people of Israel to do this. That's the word of the Lord. If they trust God's word, they're going to obey him. They have to act. They have to express their faith in the word of God. And if they do read what's going to happen, skipping down to verse 13, the blood shall be a sign for you. You might underline that phrase and circle that word sign. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And if you want to understand what that means, verse 23, uh, excuse me. Yes, verse 23 gives us the clue. Skip down to verse 23. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door. And this is a key phrase. The Lord, Yahweh, will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. So let's try and put some pieces together what's happening here. God is coming. The Lord God of Israel is coming to bring judgment on the evil of the Egyptians. And it says, as we find throughout Scripture, that God's judgment is being enacted by one called the destroyer, the destroyer. In the Psalms, in Psalm 78, 49, there's a recounting of this story of the Exodus. And it says that God brought his judgment by a band of destroying angels. Many times throughout the scripture, we could, if we had time, we could go trace out a bunch of them from 2 Samuel all the way to the book of Revelation. When God is bringing his wrath on evil, he sends angels to be the mediators of his judgment, who are enacting his judgment. And so now the judgment of the Lord is coming through the destroyer, some sort of angelic force that God is sending. But we're told here that God is going to defend and protect certain households from this destroyer. Do you see that? Look at verse 23 again. The Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. And the households that are going to be protected from the destroyer by Yahweh, by the Lord, are the households that have blood. Now, in the pagan Cultures of the ancient Near East, like Egypt, people often use blood as a sort of magic charm to keep away demonic spirits that were not under the control of the gods. But that is not what's happening here. There's several differences here. First of all, the destroyer is not a demonic spirit outside of the control of the Lord. The destroyer is an agent of the wrath of the Lord. Second of all, in the book of Exodus and in the Mosaic law as a whole... Blood is not used as a magic charm. Blood is usually a sign that God is cleansing, that God is purifying the people from their sin and the defilement that their sin brings. So when you put the pieces together here, here's what's happening. God is sending the agent of his wrath to judge the evil of the Egyptians. But God has given a word. And everybody who receives the word of the Lord by faith expresses their faith with obedience and puts blood on the doorpost, which is a sign of cleansing. And because this sign of cleansing has come, now the holy God, Yahweh, can come to the presence of this home and defend it from the destroyer. You got the pieces there in your mind? This is about cleansing the defilement and the sin in this household. Let me give you a couple New Testament references. But before I do that, Christians, this is precious stuff. The, if, if you go read the, the writings of the early church fathers, meaning the Christian writers from the first 
six centuries after Jesus. If you were going to make a list of what are the passages from the Old Testament that they spent the most time writing about, there would be a few that would stand out. Isaiah 53, Psalm 110, Exodus 12. They wrote a lot. They feasted upon this passage because they saw so much gospel truth here. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John make it clear. Jesus is dying during the celebration of what? It was the Passover, right? The cleansing of the blood of the Lamb, of Jesus, is connected to the Passover. So we need to pay close attention to what's happening here. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to bring you those hundreds of pages of what the church fathers wrote about this. Some of you are disappointed and everybody else just said, whew. Okay, but I'm just going to read you a few Bible verses. Here's, here's one. Hebrews 11:28. This is a passage in which people who trusted God in the Old Testament are being commended for their faith. And listen to what it says about Moses. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Okay, he sprinkled the blood so the destroyer wouldn't touch the people. And he did that by what? Okay, we can do better. He did that by what? That's right. They heard the word of the Lord. Moses heard the word of the Lord. The people heard the word of the Lord. They believed it and their faith expressed itself in obedience by faith in the word of the Lord. They sprinkled the blood so they were protected. There's one. Now, let me give you a couple other verses. The New Testament consistently pictures Jesus as the Passover lamb. That's not the only Old Testament reference to understand uh, the cross. Isaiah 53 pre- presents Jesus as the suffering servant. Jesus is presented as the sacrifice of atonement from Leviticus. But I'm just saying one of the main clues to understand the cross is the Passover lamb. So let me just read you a few things. A, few, a couple of the verses here. First John one verse seven. A lot of you all probably have memorized first John one nine. That's a verse that says if we confess our sins He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, how does he do that? On what basis does he wipe away our sins? The answer for that is verse 7. 1 John 1, 7 says this, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us all from sin. So everybody say cleansed by the blood. And then let's go look at one more. First Thessalonians one nine. And this is going to bring everything together beautifully from our text today. First Thessalonians one nine. Paul is writing to the, these Christians, the Thessalonians, this church, and he's talking to them about the good reputation that the Thessalonians have and how God is getting glory by other people hearing about how they changed when they trusted in Jesus. And here's what we read for they themselves, those other church report. Concerning us, the kind of reception we had among you. Now, here's the key part. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. You turned to to God from idols. So that's about the Lord and the gods. They These Thessalonians were worshiping fake gods that made them slaves. Now, through Jesus Christ, they're worshiping the true God who makes them free. And then it continues like this. To... Serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the Passover was a sign which pointed backwards for the Israelite people to help them remember how God saved them. But it also pointed forwards to Jesus. Everybody say it's all about Jesus. 
The whole Bible is all about Jesus. It's written to make us wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And here's the message. Jesus cleanses us from our sin. Jesus dethrones the false gods of the world and calls us to worship the one true God. Jesus saves us from the wrath that is coming on the evil of the world. And Jesus leads us into the true promised land of relationship with God where we experience freedom and joy. That's the gospel. Now, as we wrap up today, I got to make one more little point. In Exodus chapter 12, not only are we getting the story of God's gracious deliverance. God wants to set you free. God wants to dethrone the false gods. God wants to cleanse you by the blood of the lamb. We're also reading about God instituting a festival called the Passover, which marks the calendar. And here's here's a, a closing thought for you. The calendar of God's people, their year, and the rhythm of their lives, actually every week, the rhythm of every week, was defined by the story of God's gracious salvation. And God is teaching his people the disciplines of remembering and celebrating his saving grace. Okay? The, the rhythm of the lives of God's people was defined by celebrations of God's grace, and he's teaching them the discipline. Let me show it to you a few places in the text. Look at verse 2. This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. So in the Jewish religious calendar, the, the year started with the celebration of the fact that God saved his people by grace. That's how you start the calendar year. You're remembering it every week. You're celebrating it on the Sabbath, but also... The year, throughout the year, there's celebrations punctuating this reality. Skip down to verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. And God gives them commands here. He actually threatens them if you don't obey my commands. But this is amazing. Here's the command that he says, you better obey this or else. Don't work, throw a big party. Nobody work. Everybody feast and tell the stories about even when you were stubborn and stiff necked, I saved you by grace and set you free. That's amazing that that is happening in this text. Then look at verse 17. You shall observe the feast of the unleavened bread for on this very day. I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. And it goes on to talk about. Um, teaching your children when they ask you, why are we having this feast? You teach your children about God's saving grace. I knew we could tie Mother's Day into this text somehow, y'all. Thank God for mamas that taught us about God's saving grace. See, that was a smooth, premeditated transition. Thank God. But on the real, though, here's this was the Old Testament calendar. And then the Christian church received the exhortation and Hebrews 10, 25, do not forsake assembling yourselves together as is the habit of some, but exhort each other every day as long as it is called today. We need community. We need to learn the discipline of celebrating the grace of God. And here's just an observation. Look around at your life and at your friends. When Christian folks are disciplined on a regular basis to show up, 
to come to celebrate God's grace, to hear his word, to encourage each other, they tend to grow over time. And when they get out of that fellowship and that discipline, bad stuff starts to happen. Not only that, but the Christian calendar traditionally and the centuries after Jesus came to have three highlights, three feast days throughout the year that mark the calendar for the Christian. And those are Christmas Christmas, when the Son of God became flesh to save us by grace. Easter, when the crucified Son of God who died for our sins rose from the grave, breaking the power of death. And Pentecost, when the Son of God sent the Holy Spirit to empower us as the first fruits of our inheritance, as children of God. And the, the church throughout the ages has celebrated those feasts as reminders that life is not ultimately about how good we're doing or how bad we're doing, what's going on around us. Life is all about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And because of that, we can have joy. Now, we don't really need to build in that many events to remind us that the world is messed up. Amen. We don't need to build in that many events to remind us of that. I mean, we we do need to examine ourselves from time to time. We do need to be broken over the sin in the world. But if we are people walking with God, we've got the Holy Spirit, we're going to know the world is broken. But what we do need is to learn the discipline of celebrating grace so that we can learn to say, even when life is a mess, Christ is king. By grace, I'm forgiven. And I have laying ahead of me an inheritance that nobody can take away from me because nothing can separate me from the love of God. God loved me before I ever started to trust him and follow him. And he'll never stop loving me. Now, in that spirit, I want to ask you to stand to receive the Lord's Supper. The, the Lord's Supper was instituted by Jesus during a fe- Passover meal. You remember that? He wants us to remember what he has done for us. He shed his blood so that we could be set free and cleansed. Amen. He shed his blood so that the destroyer that would come on us for our own sin would not destroy us. Jesus shed his blood and rose again to dethrone the dark powers of the world. So I want to ask you if you'd be comfortable, if you're willing, just to hold your hands in front of you in a posture of reception. Jesus is offering you a gift of grace. And as I am quiet for a moment and then I lead us in prayer, I just want to ask you to receive the gift of God's grace and to release whatever it is that you might be holding on to. In this moment, perhaps the Holy Spirit is going to bring to your mind things that have been competing with God. For the ultimate place in your life. You might even, if you're brave, pray and say, Holy Spirit, show me the false gods I've been living for. And just release them to God. Say, forgive me and say, I'm going to turn back to them unless you help me. Please help me, Lord. And I receive your grace in this moment. Oh, Lord, it's our confession that If we got what we deserved, it would be destroying wrath because we've all sinned against you. And for that reason, we sing with the angels and the myriads that we read about in the book of Revelation who say, Worthy is the lamb who was slain. For by his blood, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and nation and made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Jesus is our hope. We confess our sins. We confess that Jesus is Lord, that he's the victorious king. And we pray in this moment as we go to the Lord's Supper that your Holy Spirit would 
refresh us with the knowledge of your saving grace. And you would help us to release whatever it is that we're holding on to that needs to be released to you so that we can walk in the freedom that is our birthright as children of God. Bless the bread, bless the cup, bless our hearts to receive the gospel, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.